Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Um, please don't leave questions for me in the comment section. That's definitely guaranteed to not get them um, to me because I don't scour the comment section anymore looking for comments or questions, rather. And uh, so send them to me by email. You guys have been, been great about that as I've been stressing it. So thank you for that. And also, I will remind everybody that my Patreon supporters get to the top of the queue and their questions, of course, can also be sent to me on the Patreon uh, app. So, okay. This week, I posted what I believe will be my final episode on the topic of Black Lives Matter and my problems with the ideology or uh, organization of that and some of my concerns with it. I've talked with a number of people now. I'm satisfied that I've certainly gotten my chance to express my concerns while it's at the same time expressing my support for what's going on. Um, so I hope you guys will check those out. And like I said, I don't expect that I'll be putting any more content on that particular topic together. Um, I know most of you guys really liked it. Some of you guys didn't. And uh, I don't know what to say. You know, I don't think anything I said was unfactual or wrong, because, of course, I wouldn't think that. <laughs> so anyway, um, whatever, we will move on. I'm definitely deep in the land of MLMs right now, as I've been mentioning. Um, so it's a it's a weighty and fascinating topic and very, very culty, by the way. Um, not, not a big spoiler alert there. <laughs> so now let's go ahead and get on with uh, your questions. We have some really nice non-controversial ones this week. Kevin Zay, the Mormon church leadership has been using their powers of persuasion, so to speak, to get more members to wear masks and decrease noncompliance. From an ethical or moral standpoint, is it any better or any different when leadership in a high-control group uses their leverage for beneficial purposes, such as increased mask wearing amongst members? Thanks for the question, Kevin. And actually, this is really good. I'm glad you asked this because it gives me an opportunity to point out that the whole thing about high control groups, uh, cult, destructive cults, you know, authoritarian groups, these things that we that we call these groups, these are not groups that are engaged 100% of the time in abusive behavior. Uh, there is good with the bad. Otherwise, no one would stay. You know, people are only going to put up with raw, straight abuse. I mean, believe me, I know, for so long before they finally just have had enough and they have to question what they're involved in uh, or just get the hell away from it, you know, for sure. But at least question, why is this, you know, there's no good anymore in this. And that, in fact, is one of the reasons people start snapping out of it. So, you know, does it, is it a different, you asked from an ethical or moral standpoint, is it better or different? No, it's not any different or any better. Um, we don't give more credit to you know, North Korea for providing electricity to its citizens. That's a thing that governments are supposed to manage and make sure is happening, you know, um, or, you know, whatever. Like, you know, in other words, things you expect and would take for granted from somebody is not something you need to... Uh, when, a, when an abusive person does it, we, we should not be going out of our way to, you know, publicly laud them for that. And, of course, this has happened, you know, many times. I think there is the point that you want to reinforce positive behavior, but that's not really what I'm talking about with, the, with, uh, with this sort of thing. It's, there's no difference from a moral standpoint is, the, is really what I'm trying to communicate there. So 
the Mormon church does care about its its base, its people. I mean that there is there is no question about it. They, um, you know, it is a it's a I would say, God, I don't want to say mostly good. I mean, the Mormon, you know, practice has real issues and problems still, but it has mainstreamed a lot too. So I have acknowledged that. Yet I still hold firm that these abusive behaviors that the Mormon Church engages in must continue to be exposed, and exposed more so even than the good work that they do, because you expect them to do good work. They're a church. They put themselves out there as a, an organization whose sole purpose is to you know, bring more people on board, have happier communities, happier lives for all of their members. So if you're going to be pushing that kind of rhetoric, then we're not going to be, you know, applauding every single time you do something good, but we're definitely going to be pointing out the abusive behaviors, and there are truly abusive behaviors going on in the Mormon church to this day. So, you know, we got to talk about that stuff. Is it a good thing, of course, that, you know, can we give any acknowledgement? Sure, of course we can. It's obviously a good thing that the leadership of the Mormon church wants their you know, flock to survive this epidemic and are pushing, you know, uh, common sense really at this point, um, safety measures and social distancing measures and stuff like that. That's, that, that, of course, that's a good thing, you know. Um, I mean, I suppose in the world of Scientology, we've seen that with all their uh, hysteria about cleaning everything, you know. I'm pretty sure that they probably did go on a roll, because I'll tell you, if there's one thing Scientologists, and especially Sea Org members, know how to do, it's clean. Whole course that you take as a ba- as part of your basics of getting into the Sea Org. I know you asked about the Mormons, but just, uh, you know, to, to counter with another example of a high-control, destructive, abusive organization that yet saw PR value in cleaning because that was one of its main go-tos. The Sea Org is constantly cleaning. Um, as I understand it, it's kind of like that, um, uh, you know, in the Navy, too. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I've been told various things. But, you know, painting, cleaning, you know, fixing stuff is just constant work. And it's kind of like that in the Sea Org because cleaning, of course, and upgrades are a uh, way to get, you know, keep, uh, you know, a lot of people busy for periods sometimes long periods of time. So I hope that answers your question. Cyprian Ivanov. In a video I saw recently, Twilight Zone creator Rod Serling talked about how a large number of letters and postcards criticized the episode where Lassie gave birth to puppies, saying they were sexualizing a family show. Serling thought the letter complaints were fake due to many having identical handwriting and postmarks, but the company decided to avoid further episodes on the issue. Why did that happen? Do you think it's plausible that the opinions of the far fringe is interpreted as the opinion of the masses due to availability bias? Due to the fear that such a dramatic reaction would only be the tip of the reactions from a body averse to open complaint? Does the previous business urge to be blandly agreeable to a general audience change now that companies are seeking specific market niches with rival social groups? Okay, thanks for the question, Cyprian. Um, Let me give a sort of break this down into two parts because you've made two important points here about why did it happen that, you know, the company, that the, the production 
television station would respond to complaints that by, you know, taking down episodes of Lassie giving birth or not producing any more content like that, not allowing any more content to be produced like that. That's one question. But then you also asked about the blandly agreeable, you know, business urge. Does that change now that companies are seeking more specific marketed niches or niches? Um, so I'll address that last one first. Um, no, I see. I don't think companies in general are pursuing specific market niches as their only demographic. It just becomes, a, you know, identities or demographics are all about mar what marketing is all about, and you can take you the same product and you can communicate about it different ways to different markets or different demographics or different publics. This is what they were called in, in Scientology, is what Hubbard called it. So you have your, your construction worker public, and you have your secretary public, and you have your housewives public. I mean, these publics can cross over like Venn diagrams, but you identify the needs and wants and uh, loves and hates and fears and hopes of these different groups through surveys and through, um, well, basically through a lot of surveys. And then uh, you can also bump that up to focus groups and other techniques that marketing professionals use in order to figure out what do we need to say and how do we need to say it? How do we need to even frame it so that this product communicates that, you know, to these people that they need and want this product. Now, obviously, not all products are universally marketable. Some things like, you know, dish soap are not going to be marketed to, you know, coal miners, right? So you do have different publics, and I suppose you could say different niches or niches. I really should have looked up how to pronounce that. Um, first, you know, you can have different markets for sure, different publics, but... Um, but very few, um, you know, the big companies, and here we're talking about getting into television stations, um, radio, you know, entertainment. These are, these are venues that are trying to attract the broadest possible audience. So now we sort of flip over to the first question you asked as to why did this happen? Why is it that networks or television or entertainment stations or media platforms will respond by, oh, oh, okay, there's this big complaint and we need to do something about that. Well, there's a few different levels of answer to this. Uh, it's actually can, can go quite deep, but uh, to keep it simple and short, uh, in terms of my thoughts on this, um, first I'll say that yes, there is a market fear, there is a fear of the market, you know, turning on them, of losing product, of this becoming, it's small now, but there's lots of times when a small protest that was ignored or not acknowledged or not dealt with became huge and really overwhelmed companies and in fact sometimes has destroyed them. That has happened in history. So um, it's not like it happens every other day, but it happens and companies are aware of this. And so crisis management, you know, that's a thing. There's a whole profession involved with crisis management now and various, you know, uh, sort of guidelines or checklists or steps that they follow in order to deal with you know, problems, PR problems that the companies have created. So here you have a television station. Now, this is back in the 50s. This is Lassie. 
you know, Rod Serling was making the original Twilight Zone in the 60s, you know, 50s and 60s. So this is quite a while ago before these kind of things existed. So probably here, or at least that I'm aware of, I'm, I'm aware of crisis management and PR and this sort of stuff really taking off later. Uh, it being a subject at back in the 50s for sure, but not as tailored or tuned or advanced as it is now. That's my understanding of it. But haven't done a deep dive on that particular topic more than what I, you know, what I usually talk about with it. Um, so I think there was a fear response here. I think that they were like, oh, my God, people interpreted it this way. Oh, no. Right. And if these people are, boy, you know, are, are talking about boycotting the television station, well, you know, this, this, um, those kinds of things were kind of sensational. And again, they can catch fire they can spread and they don't want that so they want to quell it right away they you put that fire out so if see it's not really any sweat off a tv station or media platform's brow to no longer show episode x or episode y of some tv show they don't care you know, if they if they remove one or two episodes out of syndication, they're still making money and everybody else is still getting paid. So it's not like, you know, if you, on the other hand, let something like this fester and boil over and become this big social problem, then everybody could be taking a, a you know, bath and, uh, you know, not doing so well, right? In other words, things could go really, really wrong really, really fast. People are losing jobs. You know, shows are not able to be produced anymore because they just get canceled. And, you know, that puts a lot of people out of work and stuff. So people who, you know, behind the scenes, the business people who administer this stuff get a lot of uh, hate for not, you know, thinking just with their moral compass on this. But this is this is business. And business is moral compass we've seen, you know, doesn't swing the same way that society's does. So, you know, business is mostly, mostly so beyond the fear and the immediate panic of the crisis, there's the there's when I said that this uh, you know there's different levels of answer to this. Another level of answer is not just fear, but you know the sort of thinking in the medium and long range. Um, you know, one or two episodes are nothing. It's no big deal. They don't care, um, and they're not the show creators. The people who make these decisions are not the same people who are producing these shows or fans of the shows even. I mean, you know, some of these people who make these decisions don't particularly like or even watch these shows. So, you know, they had kind of don't really have a lot, you know, that kind of, of moral stake in the in the in the equation. Uh, to them, it's all about bottom line and numbers and things like that. And then once, of course, these companies started becoming publicly traded, they became uh, responsible to their shareholders. And depending on who the CEO and the board and how they run their show will depend a great deal on where they're stressing or emphasizing where their profitability is coming from. And if they and, and very few of these companies are thinking too much with what the public like or what the public want. You know, we wouldn't have the quality of television and, and stuff. Well, then again, we do have the quality of television and stuff because this is what they think. Uh, the common masses, you know, want to watch. And that's how they dis program their stations. And this is why, you know, Dick Wolf has ruled NBC's, you know, late night lineup uh, or adult lineup, I guess I could say, you know, from uh, 
for decades. And now that we're seeing, you know, the, the social pendulum swing away from support for police and for police entertainment, I think uh, Dick Wolf might be out of business <laughs> before too long or certainly retooling his operation because, and I'm talking here about SVU and, and, um, uh, Law and Order, right, and all the all the Chicago uh, shows and stuff. So anyway, I've kind of gone on to this rant about television and, and entertainment and, and shows and stuff, but it's all part of the picture I'm trying to paint here, I guess, is, is really where this is all going. So forgive me for rambling, but I, I did want to uh, give a, a complete answer to this in the time that I had. So I hope, I hope it at least gave you some food for thought. Uh, let me know what you think. Logamug. Having watched a number of your videos, it's clear that for any task the church can have, there is a Sea Org posting for it. What are the most desirable Sea Org postings? Those which people compete the hardest for. Likewise, not including being the chairman of the RTC, what is the closest thing to a comfortable and stress-free post? Conversely, outside of the RPF, what are the least desirable postings? Finally, what is the strangest Sea Org posting? Okay, these are interesting questions. I had never really thought of things in the Sea Org this way. And, um, and by the way, being chairman of the board is not necessarily comfortable and stress-free. <laughs> Miscavige does stress out quite often. Um, but it is the most comfortable position in the Sea Org. That is definitely for sure. So as far as what is the most desirable Sea Org postings, hmm, um, I'm going to say, actually, when I was in the Sea Org, it was going up to int management. Um, or, you know, it, it depended a lot on the person's perspective and point of view, because also being an auditor was a pretty cool job. You got sleep most of the time because you had to be awake and stay awake for the session. So they generally weren't working until two or three in the mornings, the way they were all the admin people or the support people or the management people. Um, you know, that we didn't get any breaks like that. If we fell asleep at our desks, it was, you know, slap you in the head and wake up and get back to work. You can't do that with an auditor in an auditing session. They have to be, you know, good to go for the most part. And if they're not, they're going to make mistakes. It's going to come out and it's going to become a problem. So, um, so that was a fairly desirable post if you had any kind of urge to help people individually. If you didn't, then it was torture because you're stuck in a room for eight hours a day. But if you were at all interested in, you know, in trying to help people out, then that was a thing to do. Um, but also the other for the administrative side of things, uh, getting up to int management was super, super desirable because that was supposed to be Scientology heaven. It was supposed to be the place where, you know, we all know how bad David Miscavige is and how, how his inner circle is terrified and how it's, you know, it's just an abuse fest. But that information that we all know is tightly, tightly controlled within the world of Scientology to the point where the, most people in, in the Sea Org believe, or at least when I was there they did, that international management was just the most standard, rigorous, most wonderful place. I mean, rigorous in terms of rigorous of application of L. Ron Hubbard's policies and tech, right? What he said to do was, was supposed to be 
supposedly followed to the letter like no other place ever. And everybody who ever came down from int management and spoke to us would talk about it in these glowing terms, which, of course, we all know they've been told they better talk about it in glowing terms or it's going to be, you know, uh, the RPF, the whole or worse for them. So, um so we all thought, desirability-wise, that getting up there was the was the cream of the crop. It really didn't even matter what you were going to do because there were so many cool things to do up there between music mixing and video editing and graphic design and art and making films. I mean, every aspect of making a film is there, plus international management, overseeing the strategies and programs for the whole world. I mean, man, if you wanted to actually like feel like you were doing something effective to change the conditions using Scientology, change the conditions of the planet, then int management was the place you wanted to go, you know? So that was, you know, I learned after getting out, <laughs> oh man, was I glad that I wasn't qualified to go there. Now, the other thing um, you said, uh, what's the most comfortable and stress-free post? Okay, this might or might not surprise you, but I think my answer is going to be a letter registrar. And this is a letter writer, basically. It's somebody who sits all day long, usually in a basement floor facility or place like that. In Big Blue, the letter regs are all down in the basements. Uh, at Flag, I imagine it's the same. They might have an office. Um, and it's just writing letters to prospective Scientologists or people who have bought services. It's not cold letters. It's not like send them out to the phone book. It's if a person has ever bought a Scientology book or service of any kind, you've got their name and address. And if you don't have it, you skip trace it and you find it. And then you send them a letter and you say, hey, haven't heard from me in a long time, you know, blah, blah, blah. And all you got to do is write those kind of letters all day and respond to letters that are written back to you. And this also, of course, would include emails now, too. And it's all kept on this, you know, kind of computerized central um, database sales system now, but um, but it's still pretty chill job. Now, I'm not talking about doing any of the direct sales or the phone call sales. This is writing letters, okay? And this is classically old people work. Uh, the senior citizens of the Sea Org are almost uniformly put onto letter writing detail, and this is what they spend their time doing. So, um, yeah, so that's that. And then in terms of outside the RPF, what are the least desirable postings? Um, you know, being in the galley was always considered a punishment. Um, being in estates, in the estates division, which meant you were on the grounds, you were a groundskeeper, or you were, um, you know, an engineer type. The engineers tended to be considered a little more higher skilled and specialized training, so we didn't really think of them in the same degraded way that we did the dishwashers or the people who were cooking the food and stuff. Um, a lot of people would be busted from ant management and end up in the galley. And, you know, you couldn't even talk to them about what they had been busted for. It was all, you know, hush-hush. But apparently they'd screwed up so bad that they got the straight, direct route to the lowest, you know, scummiest job. So that's, um, that's how we used to think about it, at least in PAC. And uh, then you asked, uh, what's the strangest Sea Org posting? For me, I'm going to say... Um, because it really struck me as odd 
that this was a thing, but of course it would have to be, would be caretaking one of the L. Ron Hubbard house properties or special properties. And like, for example, his home in South Africa was purchased and restored. The home in, uh, in Arizona um, was purchased and restored. Uh, the uh, CST, the Church of Spiritual Technology properties, have homes where there are Sea Org caretakers there on those properties out in Trementia, out in, uh, out in New Mexico. Um, so there are Sea Org members. I think a couple usually, literally a married couple, is usually what's posted out there because you need two people. And, uh, and they have to keep the place up, do the tours, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, not that there's tours of the, the CST facilities, but the houses are sort of presented as, as little museums that the public can make schedules and go and tour. So that's kind of weird one, right? But that's Sea Org. That's not, uh, that's not staff. So there you go. Chase Robertson. Do Scientologists think they will develop psychic powers by following LRH's teachings? What did they think of outsiders, non-Scientologists, who claim to be psychic? Anything else you could add to this topic? Thank you for doing your show. Hey, Chase, thanks. And yes, Scientologists very definitely believe that they will develop psychic powers using Scientology or by, you know, going up the levels of Scientology. I myself uh, used to play a game with my mom when I was a kid. She actually sort of um, taught me this and we started doing it. And it was literally like staring at each other and trying to perceive each other's mental image pictures like telepathy and um, and sometimes we would guess right and sometimes we guess wrong but we'd sit there and and not like in two chairs just facing each other we usually did this while we were washing the dishes and I thought it was kind of a fun game it was like this telepathy game you know so this was something that I was raised with the idea of is that I could you know have this psychic connection with people and it was funny because um, for years I used to, uh, you know, really want that psychic connection with people I had fallen in love with, who I was a couple with, right, a uh, girlfriend or whatever, or my wife. And, um, and it never really seemed to manifest. And I was always like, ah, that kind of sucks. You know, sometimes you have that, oh, this person's about to call and then the phone rings thing. And that would happen with my mom through my whole life. And, and it kind of, you know, I don't know, it kind of started with that game is how I've always thought of it. I am sure I am full of it on this entire thing. I think it's kind of hilarious that I laugh at myself about all this. But I'm, I'm talking about it so you'll get an idea of how somebody brought up in Scientology might think about it, which is that it's a legit thing. That, that because we're spirits, we can communicate to each other directly and we don't have to go through bodies. So, yeah, this is definitely a belief in Scientology. Um, then in terms of outsiders claiming to be psychic, kind of the same thing. Like anybody could be because we're all Thetans, we're all spirits. So we've all got latent abilities. And Hubbard talked about how people can randomly remember things from their past or have certain abilities and not even be aware of what the ability is or how they have it. But, you know, we would explain it in terms of a, of a Thetan. And energy flows and pictures and, you know, Hubbard's terminology, other fields and, and ideas uh, use other terms. But the, but the idea that there could be psychics and that they could be legit, 
Absolutely, Scientologists believe that. That doesn't mean they're going to believe every Tom, Dick, and Harry or Cleo who says that they are a psychic, and especially when they're selling their services. Scientologists don't really go in for that too much. But I could see a Scientologist going to visit a fortune teller or seeing a psychic and sort of, you know, maybe there's a problem and they want to, you know, get some help with it or something. I could see that happening, even though I never, I never heard about anybody doing that that I remember when I was in Scientology. Um, so yeah, that's uh, now nah, I think that's uh, I think that's a, a a decent coverage of it. Um, it's not just psychic telepathy that Scientologists believe in too. They believe at the ultimate levels that telekinesis could be a thing, uh, clairvoyance, clairaudience. You know, in terms of predicting the future. Um, or distant perception, remote viewing, things like that. Those are all beliefs that Scientologists hold are real, literal possibilities. Blake Nestle. Perhaps you've seen the recent episode wherein former recording artist Nick Cannon went on a rant that wouldn't have been too out of place on the front page of the Daily Stormer. Perhaps you've also seen how actor Terry Crews was lambasted for a tweet calling for unity. Are you worried about the seeming establishment of an ideological orthodoxy around ethnicity slash race and the litany of other subjects? Does the attempt at Orwellian redefinition of terms regarding the concept of racism concern you? Prominent societal figures sign a letter condemning cancel culture and are in turn targeted for cancellation. The only moderate voice at the New York Times resigns, citing an ideologically hostile environment as the primary reason. Do all of these occurrences and their implications on practically all discourse not terrify you? How can we find beneficial solutions if a massive chunk of America is gaslit into having the tough conversations, then societally ruined for any dissenting opinion? Okay, thanks, Blake, for the um, rundown on this. And, you know, obviously there are a lot of opinions all over the spectrum on these issues. And there isn't really, and, and a lot of the questions you're asking me here are not right, wrong, fact, you know, versus fact type of answers. Although people with very strong opinions about these things, myself included, will stand by their principles or morality or the worldview, which is an, you know, really an amalgamation or collection of a lot of different factors. And they will take their positions based on their own experience of things and decide whether this is a calamity in the making or whether this is just business as usual and the usual give and take of the diversity of marketplace of ideas that we have now so firmly established and so loudly established on social media. Which is, you know, kind of now everybody's uh, sort of id is right there in the public eye, at least as far as people who are contributing to offering up their comments and ideas and opinions about things. Do I think it's, you know, sort of an end of the world scenario where we're seeing the end of free speech? No, I don't think that at all. I really, really don't. In fact, the fact that we're still debating all of this so hotly, that the pendulum is swinging back and forth because it swung toward cancel culture and the, the desire to take people out who are not producing right think and right speech, 
um, that pendulum is swinging back the other direction now to the point that that's now being seriously called into question at the highest levels of, intel of intelligentsia and academia now. And that's, that's to be expected. It's a pendulum that swings back and forth in our society as things trend in different directions. You know, This I mean? is something we've been debating and talking about for literally centuries. I mean, you can go all the way back to John Stuart Mill's classic treatise on free speech, which is called On Liberty, and an amazing piece of work, which anybody who's interested in this topic really must read, because it's sort of the foundational text for modern, you know, Western thinking on free speech. And um, anyway, I'm not going to answer this with a whole huge, my own treatise on free speech. I'm just going to say that it's because of the fact to me that it's still a topic of hot debate and, and flying attitudes as expressed all over the spectrum, I think that this is still a totally hot issue. And that means that freedom of speech is still hot and heavy, and we've all got the right and are still using it. And yes, different platforms we run into every day that have, you know, questions and consequences and concerns. And free speech does have consequences, by the way. You know, you're not going to be free from cancel culture of some kind. In other words, consequences. Um, but those consequences can be taken too far. And I think that's the protest that we're seeing from the bulk of society now. And that's a good thing, you know. And this is, again, to be expected in the push and pull and give and take of things. Um, now, the Nick Cannon thing, I wanted to bring this up also for another reason entirely. And I thought this was kind of interesting. Um, if you guys don't know about this, I'm not going to do a whole rundown on it here except to say Nick Cannon is a rapper and an actor and artist. And he had a podcast or has a podcast. I think Viacom fired him now, um, although he's still got work and he's got a talk show that's been pushed forward a year, I think, to give time for things to cool down. But it's kind of interesting. If you pay close attention to this or look into it at all and know what I have said in the past about the nation of Islam, this is where things get interesting uh, and where it kind of comes into my wheelhouse because I don't, you know, up until, uh, you know, this week, Nick Cannon to me was a, you know, a comedian and, and you know, host of stupid shows and some guy who used to be married to Mariah Carey. I, I didn't really know anything else about him. And then this thing comes up where he does this podcast, and he is basically repeating the, the ideology, the thinking of the Nation of Islam. And I immediately went, what is this? He was talking about, if I might interpret rather than re-quote everything he said, like I said, I don't want to do a whole huge thing on this. I just want to say that him pointing out that the Jews are not the true Semitic people, that the black people are. That was, that, that was his assertion on his podcast. This was taken as grossly anti-Semitic, and I get it. And, um, and from, you know, certainly from the position of the people who have been calling themselves, you know, Semitic for centuries now, I could see why there would be a problem there. But the Nation of Islam philosophy, if we go back to my podcast on that and go into their mythology, they believe that they are the true Semites. And uh, there's a whole huge, there's a lot more to their litany than that. But this is Farrakhan talk. And I thought to myself, has Nick Cannon 
gone to the has he joined the nation of islam is that what's happening here because apparently this is now coming up as a bit of a thing that there are black artists who are speaking up in this sort of what's perceived as this anti-semitic disgusting way well turns out according to an article i found um on the daily beast from just three days ago we're talking about ice cube nick cannon diddy the Jacksons, uh, Stephen and Deshaun, and even beloved black author Alice Walker have have uh, spouted age-old anti-Semitic talking points, usually by quoting known bigot Louis Farrakhan. Okay, and uh, for if you don't know who Louis Farrakhan is, he's the head of or leader of the Nation of Islam, the black religious group that is uh, partnered with the Church of Scientology. Okay, this is like so crazy how this circles around to me, right? I mean, talk about, uh, you know, seven degrees of, of Kevin Bacon. So on his podcast, Cannon spoke to fellow anti-Semitic conspiracist Professor Giff, formerly of Public Enemy. And, and this guy, Professor Giff, was, was kicked out of Public Enemy and then got back in because he was spouting this anti-Jewish stuff. And he agreed with Giff's racist view that Jewish people control media and claiming that Semitic people are black people, so black people cannot also be anti-Semitic, okay? Now, now Nick Cannon was dropped by Viacom for his comments, and some football player tweeted out some defense or something and quoted Farrakhan and, and got in trouble about this, too. Uh, uh, yeah, okay, so I then googled nation of islam connection right other than quoting farrakhan not only is nick cannon quoting him he's actually been attending farrakhan speeches in person there was a fourth of july speech this year okay this is a report from three days ago uh and it says several prominent black celebrities attended anti-semitic nation of islam leader louis farrakhan's july 4th public address um, and that includes Nick Cannon and former NBA basketball player Steven Jackson, both of whom has been criticized in the past week for man making anti-Semitic comments or statements. So where do you think they were indoctrinated into thinking that the Jews are the bad guys and that the blacks are the true Semites and, 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 and they'll be talking about Jacob next. This is all Nation of Islam rhetoric, and this is Louis Farrakhan. So if you're wondering why I'm so strident sometimes about cultic thinking and how it can infect our environment and affect our airwaves and infect our minds, these are the kind of connections that I come across all the time. <laughs> so I thought this might be over long, and I might be getting into, you know, whatever, uh, you know, that some, things, some things you guys might not be interested in, but I found it fascinating that the dots connected so immediately and so quickly. Um, because I had no idea, like I said, anything about Nick Cannon just a few days ago, and I certainly didn't know that he'd been attending events with Louis Farrakhan. Um, I mean, Nick Cannon could be joining Scientology tomorrow, guys. I mean, it's that stupid and silly, these connections and how this actually works. These are dots that do connect. This isn't weird conspiracy theory stuff. So, you know, is Ice Cube going to become a Scientologist? Maybe. I mean, these are, you know, pretty wild, right? Anyway, so I um, thought you guys might find that interesting. I sure did. And um, 
As for Blake, as far as the, you know, I know you're very concerned about these things, and honestly, so am I, which is why I speak about them on my podcast and on my shows. Um, you know, how can we find beneficial solutions, you ask, if a massive chunk of America is gaslit into having the tough conversations and then societally ruined for expressing their opinions? That is true. If that were the case, then we would be having much tougher issues. What we have... Um, is we have different levels of victimization going on at the hands of the media or social media and social media mobs. Some people's lives have truly been uh, upended and they have had to hit the reset button in an extremely significant way because of Twitter mobs. That's a fact. Um, J.K. Rowling is not going to be one of those people. You know, she's not an, in that list. Just because she gets a lot of pushback against something that she's saying on transgender issues doesn't mean that she's being canceled. And this is where we get the hyperbole of the masses that also enters into this, which is why, and the, and the, the sort of fluidity of these terms and why, you know, societal trends are constantly morphing and changing right in front of our eyes, literally, as we're talking about them. So I can say something about this right now that's true for a certain level of this, but wouldn't be true. And therefore, you guys could find examples and go, well, that's not true because of blah, blah, blah. And I'd have to say, well, those are ex true examples that are true at a different level. You see, there's different levels to it. So you have the J.K. Rowling level where she's not being canceled. And then you have the um, Brett Weinstein level where he was you know, gotten rid of out of uh, Evergreen College, uh, or sorry, um, yeah, State College, um, you know, through public protest, through, uh, through the mobs. And that's what happened to him, right? And there are others who's, who have lost their jobs, uh, lost their livelihood through, you know, mob action. So we can go to that level and say, yes, that happened. And then we can go to these other levels where people are saying that's what's happening, but it's not really the same thing at all. You see what I mean? So, so the, you know, this is what I mean by levels or, or, or the spectrums of this. So given that being the case and the fact that society is changing its attitudes as we progress through time, I think what we're seeing is what I described earlier is this pendulum swinging of trends. And we're seeing the pendulum swing against the Twitter mob mentality now, whereas it used to be all in on that until people kind of got their head on straight and realized that mobs uh, don't think well, and that the consequences of mob mentality is always uniformly destructive. So not, not so good, right? And those are some comments on that. I, again, I hope I'm offering some food for thought more so than trying to give you a definitive answer of this is how it is, because um, I'm not Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not Shank Yeager or Yinger. Uh, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I want you guys to think as much as I'm thinking about this stuff. Um, and I hope I'm, so, I'm hope I'm partially succeeding in doing that and giving you this answer. Thanks for asking, Blake. Alyssa, there's a black and white photo of L. Ron Hubbard with what I'm guessing is a tomato plant connected to some electrical device. What the heck is he doing and when was this? Thanks for the question, Alyssa. This was in 1959, 1960, at St. Hill Manor in East Grinstead in Sussex, England, where L. Ron Hubbard has had established at that time his new home there at the St. Hill Manor. 
And Hubbard claimed he was researching life, the quality of life itself, and trying to determine whether plant life or cellular life is different from human life, for example. You know, and he said that it wasn't. Um, when you're talking in the spiritual realm, you can pretty much make any claim you want, and nobody can really prove you wrong. So Hubbard's, you know, claims don't really get refuted. But his work with the tomato plant, where what he had was a, an e-meter, that's an electropsychometer, and he had it plugged in. He had a couple of electrodes pl literally plugged, pushed into a tomato, and, a, and it was a live tomato. So he was asking it questions or seeing what kind of responses were occurring. And if you think that a plant can understand you, you're, you got bigger problems. <laughs> now, I remember when I was a kid that there was uh, family friends of ours who had messed around with an e-meter and a plant one day, and they had hooked it up to a plant. They were asking it questions. They, they snapped a leaf. That got a big response. I was like, yeah, I'll bet it did. Um, you know, because it's just, again, remember, the e-meter is only measuring changes in electrical resistance. So if you go breaking the fronds or, or stems or roots or whatever of a plant, you're definitely going to be changing some electrical resistance. And um, that doesn't mean the plant is talking to you. <laughs> you know? um, so anyway, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so amused by the whole concept. Now I can't stop laughing about it. But uh, when I was in Scientology, I took this stuff seriously. I thought that Humbert was onto something and that life was run by or animated by this quantity called theta, uh, of which thetans were part or were somehow a division of. See, Hubbard... Hubbard was never totally super clear on this, except to say there was some division, that us as individuals were not part of a collective whole, that we were individuals, and yet we were made up of this, this thing called theta, this quantity or quality, and, um, and all of life was animated by that quality. And um, that's what I can say about that. That sounds somewhat sensible. <laughs> Um, Hubbard was, Hubbard was an interesting character. Okay, guys, I got over my laughing. So thank you very much for watching the show this week. Really appreciate your viewership and support. Uh, if you are enjoying the show, if you want to get your questions at the top of the queue, if you want to uh, support me and what I'm doing here, please join me on Patreon or use PayPal. Links are below in the description section to this and every video I have produced out there. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.